Today I'm going to read from the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. I'm not going to read the whole of it. I've put here just snippets from that, uh, that chapter. And the part that I've left out, you can go back and read it um, this afternoon maybe. But the part that I've left out is um, basically Peter's sermon. And so Peter is preaching and then after that preaching, this is as and during and after the preaching, this is what happens. Like the Holy Spirit comes on and brings about the church and it's an amazing thing because how many of you have frequently been moved by our sermons so much that you change everything about who you are and how you live and and we become something wholly new because um, because of preaching. Well, that happened for Peter. So here's snippets around Peter's sermon to let you know what happened to that community that day. When the day of Pentecost had come, Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Now when they heard Peter's message, they were cut to the heart, and those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You've heard the ancient story. If you'll notice, I failed to put that I'm going to preach a sermon right here. And um, because of what happened on that day, I would hate to miss an opportunity for you to hear this powerful, life-changing word. If I can extend last week's theme for just a bit, scarcity and abundance. Last week we had the story of manna from heaven for the children of Israel who wandered, wandered in the wilderness. And there was always enough manna. And then we had that troublesome story from Matthew's gospel of the day of the day laborers who all get paid the same amount of money no matter how long they worked. All day or one hour, they all earned a day's wage, which on the surface seems totally unfair until we understand God's economy. God's economy is one of abundance. And we have a hard time living into that because we are so immersed in a mindset and a culture that perpetuates scarcity. It's hard for us to remember that abundance is our story. This passage today from the Acts of the Apostles is truly one of my favorites. It paints a picture of an undivided community. Wow, that sounds great. The community where everybody looked out for each other. A community where there was always enough because of the abundance of sharing and the abundance of taking care of each other and the abundance of tending to each other. 
when you let your mind begin to imagine what it would be like if we had everything in common and we shared our lives in generous ways and we even shared the intimacy of meals together, it would only seem logical that there would always be enough and not just enough but an abundance even flowing out of that of health care and education and companionship and food. So this would have not been good just for their physical well-being, but imagine the mental and emotional health uptick that would come with this kind of community. I also picture an abundance of laughter and an abundance of tender, loving care. So what happened? What happened to that ideal picture For me, this story today is way more beautiful than the Garden of Eden in all of its perfection as painted in the creation narrative in Genesis 1. I'll tell you what happened. People. People happened. In all of our failures, in all of our mistakes, in all of our pettiness, in all of our grievances, It's the same thing that happened in the creation narrative. People got in the way. We have this perfect picture, and it is impossible to live up to it. And yet, how many churches will you pass on your way home today? Church after church after church, sanctuary after sanctuary after sanctuary, warehouses and storefronts and home living rooms all being used for worship, many if not most of those today sharing a table just like the one we have set here. People all over the world today gathering in yet one more attempt to get it right. It's why we'll come back next week, too. One more attempt to get it right. And guess what? They and we will fail yet again because people get so peopley. And yet an abundance of grace still falls on us, wraps us up, and tells us we are beloved. An abundance of welcome will set yet another table today. And there will be a place setting for you, and there will be a place setting for me at the table, name card and everything. Beloved is my name, and I have found my place at this table. As it so happens, beloved is your name too. Have you found your place here? Here. Every year for World Communion Sunday, I turn over and over again to artist, writer, and minister Jan Richardson to read her poem, Prayer, that she penned for World Communion Sunday many years ago. Reading it in light of this act's text this year makes it come alive for me in new and fresh ways. Listen to this blessing. 
let it wash over you and let it welcome you and change you and empower you to become the welcome, to become the blessing for another. And the table will be wide and the welcome will be wide and the arms will open wide to gather us in and our hearts will open wide to receive. And we will come as children who trust there is enough and we will come unhindered and free and our aching will be met with bread and our sorrow will be met with wine. And we will open our hands to the feast without shame. And we will turn toward each other without fear. And we will give up our appetite for despair. And we will taste and know of delight. And we will become bread for a hungering world. And we will become drink for those who thirst. And the blessed will become the blessing and everywhere will be the feast. May it be so. Amen. The text I'm about to read is a very earthy text. As I read, I want you to make note of all the times the word water or the lack of water, the word stone or rock is mentioned. Water and stone are two essential elements of the earth and they function throughout the Bible as essential theological symbols, filled with much imagery, connotations, and theological significance. So listen now to this word. From the wilderness of Zen, our friends, our Jewish friends, uh, pronounce the Hebrew Zen. I think it's interesting the way we have it written and the imagery of the wilderness of sin and the connotations there. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Interesting parallel there and, and a connection that Moses makes between quarreling with the Lord and te testing the Lord and quarreling with Moses. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What do I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff which, with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so. In the sight of the elders of Israel, he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You have heard the ancient story. It is the whole question of faith in seven simple words. 
Is the Lord among us or not? It has been at the crossroad of belief and doubt, confidence and agnosticism, theism and atheism since our hominid ancestors first evolved enough self-consciousness even to be able to ask, am I alone? Is there another? Is the Lord among us or not? The question is being asked in unprecedented ways in our country today. And while many are not walking away from faith, only the failures of the church, those people people, you know, the scandals that will not go away, many are, in fact, walking away from belief, walking away because God, as the church speaks of God, just no longer makes sense in this world to them. God, as they understand what that word means, can no longer make any difference in their lives or in their world. We must find a new way. The church must find a new way to speak of God, a new way to tell today's story, which has one central, symbolic, metaphorical affirmation, and that is in the midst of wilderness, in the midst of people crying out for something to quench their spiritual thirst, God is among us. There is one who gives purpose to otherwise meaningless life, one who brings living water from lifeless rock. I wrote in last week's newsletter about the conference I just attended on process relational theology, and I've already heard from one of you, and I don't want to hear about process theology. And I reminded Debbie that I've been preaching process theology. Excuse me, Debbie. I reminded Debbie that I've been preaching process theology for 20 years. I just haven't always known to call it that. Now, I promised her and I will promise you that I will not bore you with some of the frontiers of process theology. You know, the metaphysics of of exotheology and panpsychism and theories of consciousness that I hardly understand at all. But I will not be able to refrain from sharing with you what I have learned. Because I will tell you with no hesitation that after last week, I have more excitement about God and more enthusiasm for Christianity and more hope for the future of faith because of the way process relational theology can help us hear the word God anew, the way it can help us to hear the truth of these stories. I have more hope than I've had in a very long time. And it comes together for me today right here, right here at this table. For the heart of process theology, my own theology, is the firm conviction that far from being only an absolute and almighty sky God, as one theologian names the old divinity, a God who is only out there and far away, for process relational theology, God is in the process of the whole universe from the vastness of infinite space and all the way down. Now that's a popular process phrase which means all the way down into matter, all the way down to the unseen essence, the movement, the spirit that is everywhere in this world. From the vastness and all the way down, God is in the process. 
Now, if you would prefer to hear that from the Bible, let me quote Paul in Ephesians 4, who said to the ancient church at Ephesus, God is above all and through all and in all. One of the fathers of this theology is a French Jesuit priest whose career as a paleontologist took him into the depths of fossils and deep time. But even as Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's work as a scientist convinced him of the essential tenets of evolution and quantum science, that science led him to a faith deeper and deeper into the God who is above all and through all and in the process all the way down in all. Teilhard said, there is a communion with God and a communion with earth and a communion with God through earth. So as we come to a table today filled with earthy things, simple bread and the fruit of the vine, let us profess our faith that even here, even now, in earthy things, the Lord is among us. May it be so.